This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. More bad news for the Liberal government. It wasn't uh, just about a week ago, I guess, that the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, came out and said that the numbers just don't add up. Now, the uh, Financial Accountability Office, the provincial watchdog, fiscal watchdog for Ontario, is saying that the province's deficit will jump this year to about $12 billion, not the $6.7 billion that they had said uh, in their uh, budget for pre-election budget. Let's bring in Jean-Paul Lam, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Waterloo, formerly an Assistant Chief Economist at the Bank of Canada, and is with us now. Jean-Paul, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Nice to hear from you, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, wh- whose numbers are correct here? Who do we believe, the Financial Accountability Office or uh, Win? I think it's, for me, it's not a question of who's correct. It's a question of who do you believe, because as you know, the, the dispute is on uh, accounting standards. The, uh, the Auditor General is using the public sector accounting standards, and, and for her, uh, we should add a few things that to the deficit and to the debt that the Liberals are not doing. And the Liberals are using a different set of accounting rules uh, that sort of mask the, the deficit and the debt long term. So it's, it's a question of, do you believe the Auditor General or do you believe the, the Liberals? It's not a question of who's correct. It's not a question of fraud here. I think both parties can make a case as to to whom is correct, uh, but it's, it's a question of who do you believe. So what set of rules should the province, uh, the province be using? What, what set of rules do provinces follow? So the, the set of rules that provinces follow differ from province to province. There is no standard set of rules that each province has to follow. Uh, typically, the, the Auditor General and these independent bodies, uh, they follow a set of rules, and that has been sort of the standard for many, many years and, and decades, and they tend to be fairly consistent with that. Governments are, on the general are very creative with their books. They can invoke different rules uh, to make their books appear uh, better as what the Liberals have been doing. I think that's a very interesting question, and, and going forward, what we should think about is take the sort of accounting out of government hands and put it in an independent body so that we don't have these kinds of disputes that we are uh, living right now with the accounting general versus the, the wind government. Jean-Paul, what is the sense of having the wa- these watchdogs, whether it's the Financial Accountability Office or the Auditor General, if uh, governments are going to use a different set of rules? Uh, it really renders these, these bodies useless, doesn't it? These bodies provide a different sort of an oversight on what the government is presenting as, as numbers. They don't sort of dictate what the numbers should be. So there are a lot of latitude when it comes to uh, recording expenses and recording revenues and how you do that in the accounting rule, uh, in the accounting world. So uh, the rules are not set in stone. And I agree with you, at the end of the day, we should have an independent body who is at arm's length, who uh, should oversee the, the books of uh, and the uh, and the financial statements of, of government, so that we we don't go where we are going right now. And and voters have to make a choice about who which which party is, is correct in terms of of the accounting. But really, at the end, Jean-Paul, what's the sense of um, implementing these rules? 
if it's only designed to make it look better? Like, is there a reason for the government using these rules other than to make the deficits look smaller than what they actually are? Is there anything to be gained by the province for uh, from uh, the, the government from using these techniques? Does it, is there any advantage to the province or does it just make the government of the day look good? Uh, there are a couple of advantages. Um, if you look at the uh, the Financial Accountability Office numbers, uh, they are projecting a deficit of roughly $12.5 billion up to 2021, whereas the province, uh, they are projecting a deficit of, of around half of that, $6.5 billion up to 2021. So, they are claiming that the deficit is small, the government, uh, whereas the Financial Accountability Office, they are claiming that the deficit is actually large and is actually a structural problem in the sense that government revenue won't be enough to cover their expenses. So right. that's why we call it a structural deficit. The government is not saying that. They are saying that by, by 2024, we will get back to balance. I think the, the Financial Accountability Office hasn't gone up to 2024, but my understanding is that they said that to get to balance, the government and future government will have to cut spending drastically by about 8%, mm-hmm. which we've never seen before and which, you know, is highly, uh, we doubt that any government will go there. So why is the government doing that? Well, basically, the government is doing that to look good. So in the eyes of the voters, they are saying, you know what, we're investing in programs, spending, uh, in infrastructure spending, and look, the deficit is not a, a huge issue. And, and that's important as well for credit rating agencies, because when we look at the set of numbers, uh, it appears from the government side of numbers that the, the, the sort of the fiscal position of the government is under control and that we're not losing this, this, um, this battle with the debt, and the debt is not ballooning at the end of the day. So, uh, are the are the appropriate pre, uh, are the appropriate people buying the government's accounting? Like you were talking about uh, credit ratings uh, and the Ontario credit rating, um, do they accept the creative accounting and say, "Oh, yeah, it's not as bad as is is what it seems"? So, we're going to give you a better credit rating, or do they listen to what the Auditor General and the Financial Accountability Office is saying. I think I think they're paying very close attention to what the Auditor General is saying, and they and think I think they understand the issue uh, at hand. Uh, so the people who are setting uh, the credit ratings aren't necessarily falling for this. I don't think so. I think they will wait for the numbers next year. Uh, Scott, if you look at what the the government is doing right now, they are saying two things. They are saying that you know we can count the surplus in public pensions as as assets. Yeah, and it's not very clear that. We even have a, a surplus at the, at the end of the day because they are using, they are discounting the, the future liabilities at a much higher rate than you should. So if you take uh, an appropriate discount rate for what they have to pay in the future, it's not very clear that we have a surplus. And it's also not very clear whether they can access this money or not. Right. That, that money doesn't belong to them. And the second portion of the, of the dispute consist of the fair uh, hydro plan. And as you know, they've sort of accounted for the, the, uh, the deficit right now that they are subsidizing electricity for everyone at the rate of $2.5 billion every year. Instead of counting that as a deficit, 
they are saying, well, we're going to raise prices in 2028, and then the revenue that we're going to get in, um, in 10 years, we're going to count that as an asset today. The accounting general wow. said, you know, you can't, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. You can't count future, <laughs> future and it, revenues. You know, and, Jean, and Jean-Paul, it's not like you have to be an expert uh, accountant or economist to figure that out. I mean, it just doesn't sound right. It, it, it doesn't sound right. It, it, it is very creative, but it is not illegal. Right. At the end of the day, uh, do you sort of brush it off and say, well, when we get to 2028, we're going to see what happens? Or are you the kind of, of person or a voter who says, well, I think we have a problem here. These, these uh, accounting uh, rules are not correct, what the government is, use, is using. And I don't believe, and I believe there's, there's a real problem with uh, what the, the numbers that the government is presenting today. Uh, and how is the government justifying the cuts that will have to come in order to, to, to hit these goals? Well, they are not saying that there will be cuts. What uh, Minister Sousa has said yesterday and I think this morning, he's basically said that the Financial Accountability Office has always overstated the size right. of the deficit and that in the end the deficit comes out much lower than uh, what the Financial Accountability Office has projected. So he's saying that their numbers are fine, that the deficit will be $6.5 billion going forward, and that he has no issue with that. So for, for him, it's not, it's not a problem at all. Does this resonate with Ontario voters? To, uh, are they, they just interested in getting to the end of the week? You know, Scott, we talked about that uh, a few weeks ago, and I think for me, they, the fact that they went back into deficit and significant deficit for a number of years, this is telling me that they are not worried about this issue in the election. Hmm. So I think they, they may have some internal polling numbers that are telling them that this is not a big concern, well, this is not a major concern for uh, voters in this province. So for them, uh, it, the fact that they are running such large and, and uh, accumulated deficits over the years, it's not going to resonate too much in, in terms of uh, the number one issue for voters when they go to, to vote in June. So uh, Jean-Paul Lam is with us, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Waterloo, uh, formerly Assistant uh, Chief Economist at the Bank of Canada. Uh, Jean-Paul, where does this discussion go from here? Because again, as time goes by and 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 this government i guess denies what the account financial accountability office is saying and and what the auditor general is saying it seems that these people have um less say less credibility what they say doesn't matter so again what's the sense of having these offices if it doesn't really matter and as you said it's not going to resonate with voters or they're hoping it's not going to well, I, I think at the end of the day, we have to move to a, a very different system. These, uh, these independent bodies, they do their job. They, they tend to provide oversight on what the government is, is collecting as revenues and spending. But they don't have any power in the sense that they, they just present the numbers and, and at the end of the day, the government can reject and anyone can reject their numbers based on their, their accounting standards. So 
going forward, I think it's a very good opportunity to have this debate, uh, in at least in this province, given the elections and given all the disputes surrounding who is right in terms of the budget deficit, to have to implement this, this notion of having a, a completely independent body, arm's length to, to ministers and to government that is responsible for the financial statement of the government. So that we have a very clear picture at the end of the day without using any kind of creative uh, accounting uh, rules uh, and using a, a, a set of accounting rules that can be agreed upon by uh, everyone and that we use over and over again over the years so that we have a much better picture of uh, the fiscal health of the government going forward. I it, think for me that's, that's the only way to go. It seems, though, Jean-Paul, when we get there, uh, a government of, of the day changes things. I mean, will we see change in the sense that uh, will every party still want that control to use in their favor? No, uh, that's, that's the irony. I, I think the, the opposition parties have been talking about this issue for a while, but we know that uh, any a lot of governments have used these creating accounting rules in the past. And it's not just the Liberals, it's any sort of uh, governments from, from mm-hmm. different parties. So at the end of the day, the, the government wants to have control on what we present as numbers, and they want to have some power in terms of how they manipulate some of these numbers to reflect um, to, to the voters so that they don't we don't lose any votes going going into elections, for example. So it, the, the chances are we're not going to see much change here. No, it's, I think it's all talk and yeah. not a lot of action, Scott. Unfortunately, at the end of the day, I think we are not going to see a lot of changes. We might ha- revisit the same issue next year with a different government, for example, when the government and the Auditor General will again disagree on what is the correct number. It's been a problem in the past, and it's going to continue to be a problem in the future, I think. Can any future government just look to the previous government and said, well, they did it? That's what I think will happen. It always happens like that. They will inherit a set yeah. of books and they will say, look, we, we didn't do anything. But this is the real number. And they will probably make it appear worse than what it really is so that they, they, uh, they look better going forward. So it's, it's, a, it's a game that uh, any government has played in the past, and unfortunately, unless we change the system, how we we uh, we do the financial statements of government going forward, it, it's not going to change. Jean-Paul Lam has been with us, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Waterloo, formerly Assistant Chief Econ- uh, Economist at the Bank of Canada. Jean-Paul, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau didn't say yesterday whether there would be a possibility of a delay in legalization of marijuana. Then why are we talking about it? Well, because he didn't really seem to stress it the other way either. Uh, two months left until the government's deadline. Is there a deadline? Do we? You know, I guess there is with the Senate's approval. Uh, also, uh, lots calling on this to be delayed uh, a little bit while everybody gets uh, their oars in the water. Let's bring in Dan Malik, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hey, Scott, no problem. What's your other book on opioids? Oh, it's some called When Good Drugs Go Bad. All right. Um, give us an update on all of this. Is Has the Prime Minister's stance changed on this at all? Um, well, it's tough to say. Uh, it sounds like there are so many, as you said, people who want to get their oars in the water or want to get their hands 
uh, want to get involved in um, sorting out what they see as to be potential problems with cannabis legalization that, um, you know, you don't want to rush consultation. Um, and it sounds like he was hesitant to say anything because it's hard to get a sense of how much consultation is enough. Who is my take on what he, on, on sort of his hesitation. So do you think they will roll this out with still some unanswered questions and they'll deal with those as they come up? Or do you think they'll wait until everything is perfect before they uh, drop the flag? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that they will. Um, there will be some people who say they rolled it out too quickly um, because they didn't consult with everyone. But in any policy creation, you consult. It's an interesting situation because you consult with the people that you think need to be consulted with, or in a highly political situation, you consult with people who will say what you need them to say. Um, but in this case, um, there are so many voices and there's so much concern, some of it more legitimate than others about the impact of legalization. Uh, we see a lot of language that is rooted in just the illegal nature of cannabis now and so some of the problems that are caused by that and really that are caused by prohibition that the law is hoping to get away from um that that it seems like maybe they missed maybe it was a misstep to say a year would be enough you know between when the law was proposed and, and all of the consultation just because normally you wouldn't take that long and i think that actually they're the, the framework that was developed was a fairly clear one, um, but then, and there was a lot of consultation then. But but at this point, it just seems that more people, more organizations are raising issues that you don't want to just dismiss out of hand, especially Indigenous communities. So where is this line now? I mean, I guess it is it is all tentative. I guess it started as July, although the government yeah. said they never said that. Then they said back to late summer early i've even heard early fall so where are we and do you think that he may adjust this well uh yeah yeah i i I don't really want to try to get inside the prime minister's head um but i do think that uh, one of the issues now that's coming up is the timing of the parliamentary session like when it's when when they break for the summer once that happens it's going to be a big delay before anything more can happen. What they, but as you just noted, the, you know, the government didn't say when it would uh, happen. There was talk around July 1st. I think that, that that was fairly clear at one point. But what happens, and, and the law says this, that, that once it's passed, it's an order in council, which means basically the government itself determines when it comes into effect. So the law itself doesn't say when it comes into effect. And if they can get it passed, I mean, it could be possible that they pass the law, it goes through third reading, it's approved at the Senate level, um, and then more consultation takes place. Because what you have is a law that, that, that legalizes it, and then processes and regulations and things like that that aren't embedded in the law but have to be developed through whatever um, structures are created, uh, if there's a new office or organization or administration or something like that. Do you think the government predicted this would go smoother than it has? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, Or or perhaps just didn't see the obstacles. uh, But how can you not? (laughs) Well, yeah, and that's the the challenge. Some people, if if you're surrounded by people who say, well, yeah, I mean, 
why is cannabis illegal, right? You know, if you if if you got a bunch of friends who say that and think it's a ridiculous law, and you don't have people saying, well, because for these various reasons, however spurious those arguments are, right. um, then you don't necessarily see the the wrinkles. That said, Bill Blair, whose job was to um, shepherd this through the system, he was the chief of police, right? So he wouldn't necessarily have been entirely oblivious to some of the challenges, right? And there are, you know, mm. the, the government is full of a, a variety of people who have a variety of perspectives, and I'm sure some of them were not interested in cannabis being legal. So, so I'm sure that um, there was a recognition of, of potential problems and uh, roadblocks. Um, there probably a lot of these things would have been easier to manage had um, Trudeau not um, created an independent, you know, the group of independents that used to be liberal members in the Senate because mm-hmm. he would have it would have been able to right. to move it through, through Senate faster. Yeah, yeah, and but then and and all of these other concerns that came from different committees within and without Parliament would have been able to be dealt with in that time that it was sort of bogged down in Senate or not bogged down. I don't want to make it. Yeah. It, it was being it's got to run its course yeah. in Senate. Right. So what are still the big challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? Cause you know, when you think about it, it's, it's getting pretty close to summer. So as you, what do you see as some of the biggest uh, obstacles at this point? Uh, yeah, it's, it's really tough to say in, in some ways. I mean, what, I tend to look at these things from a sort of a, a broader perspective, and when I look at the language of, uh, around people who are concerned, there still seems to be a big um, sort of throwback to, as I mentioned earlier, kind of the prohibition era, and I mean cannabis prohibition era, perception of the problems created by cannabis, right? Um, and I put problems in quotes because, you know, it, depending on your perspective, they're not problems. Like the issue of... Um, addiction that people talk about, which is really a questionable uh, thing. Um, all, so all of these ideas that sort of persist through different, um, through different people's, uh, you know, concerns around, around cannabis. So, so you've got different groups saying, you know, we need to you know, put the brakes on this and consider it because of these issues. And I, I don't want to get into all the, the details mm-hmm. of the issues. And yet, the reason they're concerned about those particular issues, be it addiction or um, mental illness or things like that, is because of the context in which cannabis has been um, considered up until that point. Um, and think, yeah, I, I mean, could go on. So, so that's how I look at that. But there are also now new issues emerging around um, the sharing of taxes with Indigenous communities. Talk a little bit about that. How is this going to complicate issues? Obviously, well, yeah, it, it's a tough decision to weigh, it's a tough uh, yeah. subject to weigh into. Um, well, but but why, is, why are we talking about this now, or is this just coming up now simply because we're drawing towards the end and there's still no resolution? Yeah, it, it could be that. It could be that as it's going through Senate, I think it is a Senate committee that, of what they call Aboriginal Affairs Committee that's looking at this as well as the... Um, the, the council, I can't remember, the, the, the various chiefs. Um, the, the concern is around the fact that the government, uh, the, the federal government seemed to be quite willing to capitulate to provinces' demand for like the 25-75 split of revenues. But um, indigenous communities function outside of that relationship with right. provinces, right? So they're saying, you know, and this is where I say some of the issues come out of 
uh, I think, maybe not completely well-founded fears. They're saying we're going to face even more problems in our communities because of cannabis legalization, and they link it to uh, addiction and stuff like that, which may not be so clear because right now, with cannabis being illegal and people getting their hands on it, you may be having more problems than when it's legal and easier to um, manage, right? But that's a legitimate concern about saying, well, where's the revenue for us? Because you know, we're going to have to deal with things like policing and things like um, various services that they might want to roll out. Um, and that's something that I don't think has been discussed. Well, it seems like um, the Indigenous groups and, and leadership are not seeing the consultation being satisfactory enough with the government. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, where one of the issues is coming up. It, 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 they, they paint it as the Prime Minister is kind of just um, brushing it off, saying, don't worry about it, we're, we're, we're with you. And they want something more. And understandably, because there's a long history of Indigenous people being told something, yeah. being promised something, and then getting uh, nothing or at least a short shrift, right? Uh, did other, did other, do other jurisdictions have these same challenges? How did they deal with these? How did they get here sooner? Um, was it just as, was it just as difficult for some of the states in the U.S. to get through all of this? Why? Well, what happens, especially with, um, Colorado and Washington state is a lot of the stuff was embedded and embodied in, the amendment or the propositions that were passed, right? So instead of, and, and I mean, if there was over a year between those those laws or propositions being passed or accepted and cannabis being legal in those states, but there were a lot more of the details in those um, in, in those laws. So so this is one of the issues that now you know in a in a country that is a federal country, so we have 12 provinces and three territories uh, wrestling with these issues, as well as the federal government, it does get much more complicated than just within a um, state-by-state system. As far as things like Indigenous groups in the U.S. uh, and in those states um, and and money sharing and that, I, I know nothing about that, so I can't really... Uh, over and above the indigenous issues, also uh, questions on home cultivation and how that's going yeah. to affect the housing industry. Yeah. Um, does this wreck houses? Well, and this is another one of those examples of um, people basing it upon the illegal system, right? So if you have a grow-up going in your house and you're pumping a lot of humidity into the house and that, that's where the amounts of mold and mildew and destruction of the insides of the house. But you're not going to be allowed to do that, are you? What is That's it? You're right. allowed like um, a plant or what is it? It's four. Four, right. Um, and so uh, I'm not really super familiar with the actual horticulture of cannabis, but it probably won't create the same environment inside right. the house. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a bunch of plants in my house, none of which are cannabis plants, just everyday flowers and, and things like that. And and they're not, you know, my house. I don't think there's a mold problem. Um, so, <laughs> but cannabis also has, you know, to get the right sort of proportions of, of the various substances into the right flavors and smells and all of that stuff. You do need to be a little a better horticulturalist than I am. <laughs> you know, if the flower comes up, I'm happy. Right. So, um, I, I, of all of these challenges that are coming, um, yeah. some like indigenous issues certainly more serious than perhaps this one. Um, it, yeah. Well, I would say yes because um, both um, on sort of a uh, political and also kind of a moral perspective, it, it's not a good idea to dismiss indigenous groups 
yeah. concerns because of the, the deep history and, you know, for a sense of social justice. Uh, when it comes to housing, there could be a concern, but that also is just another lobbying organization that may feel it was not um, considered uh, enough. It may be enough just to, to, for someone to come up and say, this is kind of the extreme end of the effect of cultivating right. for cannabis plants right. in your house. Don't worry about it. And we, yeah, and, and, and but uh, yeah, so, so there are some groups who are going to be concerned about that. Some things will need to be taken more seriously than others. It's never a good idea to brush off yeah. um, groups' concerns, uh, but I, I suspect that the, um, the Indigenous groups' concerns are going to be taken much more seriously, understandably, than the of all of these challenges or obstacles, whatever you want to call them, yeah. um, delays, what have you, is the most significant one the Indigenous issue? Is that what, what do you think will be the last thing to get resolved here? It's really hard. Yeah, it's hard for me to say. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't really think I can answer that question because I don't know if people really predicted that, that this would come up at this point. Right, right? yeah. Um, people wouldn't have. I don't know anyone who's talking about the effect of cultivating four plants in a house um, affecting home values and stuff like that before, although they were talking about, you know, smoking in the house and smoking in apartments and stuff like that. Mm. Um, it's like, you know, as I've said before, as a, as a historian, it's not a good idea for me to try to predict, although I have to say a lot of the things that I thought would happen have happened. This stuff, though, it gets super complicated at this point because there are a lot of people... Um, now saying, well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, what about this? As we get into the finer details of it. Right? Uh, what about uh, locations distribution? Is that on track? Can that be something that's ready? Or could that be a stumbling block too? Well, this is, and this gets down into the provincial level, and it seems like, it seems it is on track. Um, there was that stumbling block around the positioning, uh, the, the, the location of, of some of the the stores when they announced those first four stores in Ontario um, and uh, that's that that's kind of an interesting political issue as well because I think one of the newspapers and I had actually written about this right before but one of the newspapers printed a map of Toronto with every a school with a uh, 600 meter radius around it and right. saying you know there's nowhere you can put a cannabis store that's not that close to a, a school right so those sorts of things are when people have to start to get their head around um, the, the the nature of a legal cannabis store, right? Um, a place that is, you know, the, the employee's job is, to, it's like any control regime. The employee's job is predominantly to control access to the substance, not to, um, you know, sell it willy-nilly, right? So I think that that's on track. Um, I think what we will not see until legalization happens is people starting to kind of get the idea about a control regime around cannabis in the sense that no, their job isn't to just like raise a lot of money through selling as much weed as possible. At least I don't think that's the plan. Hmm. <laughs> it would fail miserably hmm. if that was the plan. Um, so yeah, it seems that that stuff is on track. Um, uh, although I, I think that, you know, the impending election will, could cause some, um, how is that? Some issues around. Well, I mean, one of the party leaders who may, 
very well become the next premier has has suggested although once he quote listens to the people he might change his mind yeah that, um <laughs> that i wonder if this is all related to the green belt in some way uh, ah, never I mind what you're talking about. It's yeah. Green, yeah we talked about green belt and cannabis cultivation at one point here too but wow. you know he said that he wants to basically it sounds like he's got a privatization uh, yeah. regime uh, yeah. mindset now so did mike harris right um, and we didn't see that around LCBO. So he wanted to throw, he wants to throw cannabis and liquor sales to the private sector. So yeah. if he were to actually follow through with that, that would certainly change uh, things um, in those months after. I'm sure we will hear more about all of that coming up I'm between sure now and the next election. Dan Malik yeah. has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah. My pleasure. Cheers, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've heard lots uh, in the news of late about Cambridge Analytica. Uh, This was the company that uh, apparently helped Donald Trump and was also, I guess, uh, effective in the uh, Brexit campaign as well. Uh, This company has declared bankruptcy and is shutting down after uh, the Facebook scandal and them, I guess, harvesting information from other people to be used negatively and unfairly targeting those who uh, perhaps want to see certain types of information. Uh, we certainly know the practice. It, it, it's, it's, some, it's something that certainly lots of companies and uh, politicians are using. That being said, Cambridge Analytica, with the negativity surrounding them, could not survive and have been filing or are going to file for bankruptcy. Let's bring in Sid Bolton, curator of the Personal Computer Museum up in Brantford. He is with us now. Sid, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Yeah, no problem, Scott. This is an interesting turn of events. Boy, is it ever. Is it ever. Uh, you'd think these guys' stock would go up, not the other way. Uh, <laughs> that being said, tell everybody in layman's terms what Cambridge Analytica was doing. So what happened was uh, the original scandal that occurred was they purchased some data from a software developer who had basically created an app uh, I believe it was called It's Your Digital Life. And one of those apps that you can add to Facebook, and I'm sure you know many of us have added different apps uh, on Facebook and uh, done that. And so what happened was this app collected information from approximately 300,000 people. The problem with the app was at the time, Facebook didn't have tight controls on how the data was being used from these apps. And all of the friends of these 300,000 people that installed this app, all their information was then made available to uh, this particular app developer, who then in turn sold that data to uh, Cambridge Analytica, who then used that information to, uh, you know, whatever people were looking for. So in the case of Trump, looking for, you know, how are people feeling about uh, voting and what way are they going to vote and all that kind of stuff. So that's what happened is basically the company bought the information from an app developer that Facebook had basically allowed them to access the information under their rules. And part of their rules stated, you know, you're not supposed to sell this information, but the guy did it anyway. And so what's happened now, there's actually kind of a bit two sort of sort of forks of fallout of what's occurred after all of this. So Cambridge Analytica now is losing their customers because of the very, they're saying they've been villainized and it's been a very, you know, public uh, sort of uh, outlash towards them for the fact that they had this information that they bought from a a developer. And then what's also happening is that companies that are developing Facebook apps legitimately are now finding that their controls uh, that Facebook has put down on them have gotten very tight. And so because of that, 
they may not be able to stay in business. You know, there's a, a recently a Canadian company that has a, a mood app, for example, and they're worried that they're going to shut down. Uh, even though they're not doing anything wrong with the information, there's other companies that are taking all this, you know, people data and making it anonymous so that they're they're not breaking the rules of how this information is intended to be used. But such negativity has occurred over the situation that uh, now other people are, are feeling the fallout. So Cambridge Analytica is probably just going to be the first company that goes bankrupt because of this, uh, this situation, uh, but cer- and certainly probably more deservedly so because they were using information perhaps in a negative way. But there's other legitimate people that are now facing problems as well. And as one developer put it recently, hopefully this is a survivable storm, but for them it may not be. Um, again, once this story broke, uh, and every and after the initial anger from everybody, then, then everyone realized, well, they're all doing it, and all politicians or companies are doing this in some form. Uh, that being said, why is Cambridge Analytica ta- taking the heat and not the others? Uh, this practice isn't going to stop, so how is there not more demand for these companies? Well, the thing is that you know a lot of people have said now that this type of thing is going on and maybe there needs to be government regulation over some of these companies that have gotten so big. So, for example, Facebook and Google now have access to incredible amounts of information about everyone in the world. The problem with that is this, is, this reminds me back to the time when regulators were calling for Microsoft to be broken up into smaller companies um, and also... You know, that if you remember, Scott, I'm sure you remember the, the early days of the Internet, as I do, and how uh, the fact that they were bundling Internet Explorer uh, with their operating system was a big cause for concern. And so there was regulation that was sort of, you know, should we be doing that you know, with them? And, of course, you know, Microsoft said, look, anybody tomorrow could take over our business, take it away from us, let the market decide. And that's exactly what happened. So, obviously, Microsoft does not have the number one browser anymore, and they're certainly not the biggest tech company anymore as they once were. The thing is, is that if we move to this step where regulators come in and say, take a company like Facebook or Google and sort of break them up, I think what will end up happening is, is that we'll end up losing some of the benefits. I mean, one of the reasons why Facebook has gotten so big is because why? Well, all your friends are on there. So if things got broken up more, and for example, there was a lot more social media sites, and we are seeing some things happening, obviously, you know, with Instagram and other social media networks getting some traction. But the thing is, is that they're only successful if they're big. And if they're big, then we get into situations like we're in now. So it's kind of like, if we split it up, then these aren't going to be as useful to people as they are today, where there's one place where you can go and talk to your friends and do all this kind of stuff. So it's kind of a catch-22, and I'm not sure how it's going to go. Are you surprised that Cambridge Analytica has filed for bankruptcy? Are you surprised it has hit them this hard? Well, I'm surprised it's hit them this hard this fast. I mean, that's, you know, usually uh, if you look at the the size of the company, the company was fairly large, and the fact that this this has all just happened within the last few months, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're they're talking bankruptcy. And I don't know if that's because they're saying, look, um, we've had such a loss of business now that we we can't continue and we're going to sort of get out before we start owing people a lot of money. I don't know. Yeah, good um, point. I haven't, I haven't looked at their financials. Maybe the longer they stay open, the more they're just going to get sued. Yeah, and the thing is, is that like it's just so fast. Like for them to 
to close and shutter their doors so quickly. Um, maybe there was another underlying problem that this has just made worse. I don't know. It just it seems awfully quick to me. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not privy to the books and what's going on with them. But I, I just, you know, I can imagine that a lot of customers have walked away. And, you know, I can't blame them. I mean, it's funny. Like, at times we seem to not care about our information. Um, in some ways we're putting so much of it out there. There are some people who are very careful what they share, what they don't share. Uh, there's a mixture of people out there. And then all of a sudden something like this where I think we all kind of know in a way, like, don't we all know that something's happening with our data? I think it's just that this particular situation has been brought to light so much. And I think it's also the size, right? I mean, and it's interesting to note that only 300,000 people, that's not a lot of people that downloaded this particular app that shared their information um, were sort of taken from this pool. But then all of a sudden, yeah. 300,000 people turned into they thought it was 50 million, mm. but in the end, it turned out to be about 87 million. Yeah. And, you know, at the same time, Facebook is saying, regardless of the bankruptcy, we're going to go and continue to find out and make sure that this data has been deleted. Cambridge Analytica says it has, but do we trust them anymore? I don't think we ever trusted them from the beginning. And that's because nobody, nobody even knew who they were because they were not the people that we originally shared our information with. So uh, how is Facebook viewing this? They've got to think, wow, this is a shot across the bow. I mean, what does this mean for Facebook? So Facebook has really um, taken a stand with their developers. They're almost, uh, so the, the leak this has happened with happened with one of their development companies originally that signed on to make apps. I've actually gone through that process myself. And I remember reading the rules about privacy and user data and what you could do with it. They've really, really tightened controls over how the data can be used. The problem is, is that it's almost too much now. So a lot of companies, so in a way, Facebook that essentially spawned all these other sort of side businesses that could right. use user data for different things. Most of them good, unfortunately, some of them bad. Um, so now, I think the reason why some people are upset on the other side of this is that suddenly Facebook has control over the life and death of a lot of these other smaller right, companies right. that sprouted up in the tech sector. So Facebook is saying, you know what, we're going to control this. We don't want this to happen again where we kind of you know, didn't do our part in the beginning and then look at how bad it got. And then on the other side of it, they're also saying, in the case, specific case of Cambridge Analytica, they're saying, you know what, they could file bankruptcy, but that's not going to stop us from continuing to find out what happened to our data and uh, that being said, impact. That being said, if you're Facebook and you've just seen uh, Cambridge Analytica go under because basically their name is mud, what's the chance of that spreading to Facebook? How come Cambridge Analytica is guilty but Facebook is not in the public in the court of public opinion? Will this negativity spread, spread towards Facebook? Well, I think Facebook is starting to feel some of the effects of it. I mean, they certainly, and at the same time, they've also uh, came back and said they're sorry. Cambridge Analytica has said, we've done nothing wrong. So I think it was... And oh yeah, then there's that underground uh, recording in the pub or wherever they were in, in the UK. I guess that's not helping either. Yeah, and the thing is, at least Facebook is saying, look, you know, well, we screwed up and we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. So they've taken some ownership. I think that helps them a little bit. Um, and at the same time, I don't think people really want to leave Facebook. I mean, some people have. There's no doubt about it. Some people are looking at deleting their information. They want to make sure that it's 
deleted, um, really deleted, because that's the other thing. It's very difficult to get off of Facebook. Are we going that way, Sid, or is it, how about we just be responsible with what we do on social media, and even the things that we read, we just open our mind a little bit? You know what, Scott? If everybody did that, this problem wouldn't exist. You know, like, uh, is that people, where we're going at the end? It's like, is this a case of, you know, smarten up people and just be aware of what the hell you're using? Absolutely. I mean, the people need to do things like, I mean, going back to the simplest examples, you know, you, you don't post on Facebook things like when you're going on vacation. You know, if you've, you've posted a whole bunch of pictures of all the cool stuff you have in yeah. your house, and then the next post is, oh, by the way, I'm <laughs> it's going empty. to Barbados. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Like, what do you expect is going to happen, right? Because... Yeah, yeah, you just don't do that kind of stuff. But unfortunately, people don't always think about those things. And um, and maybe maybe Facebook wouldn't be quite as fun a place as it is if, if people did think too much. But at the same time, uh, some simple responsibility by people and the information that they share um, is really, really important. You know, and it could be even something simple, you know, like uh, I heard a conversation about someone recently who said, for example, they were talking about, you know, should I, put, should I wear this uh, particular piece of clothing to a wedding or something like that. And right. then the conversation was, well, what if other people on that, on your Facebook, uh, don't know about that wedding and didn't get invited? Are you going to upset somebody? It's just those kinds of things of, you know, think about what you're posting yeah. before you post it. It's Everybody's had one of those things happen, haven't they, it seems? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, uncomfortable social situations. All right, so as you look at this, Sid, and, and see where this has ended up in the sense that, and, and obviously it's not over yet, but in, in the sense that Cambridge Analytica looks like they're down for the count, what have we learned from this? What have other companies like Cambridge Analytica or even Facebook learned from this when it comes to harvesting data? Because lots of companies do it. So what's the, what's the what do we take from this? I think people have to understand that um, it may be a little bit less useful in some ways, but it's very important for anybody who's got, you know, personal information on anybody. They need to anonymize that data, uh, make sure that uh, there's lots of safeguards in place. It's no different, Scott, to me than it is things like credit cards. And the credit card industry has really, you know, taken this tightened down in terms of protecting customer data. It's more for their own benefit because they're the ones that end up losing when uh, when money gets stolen. But I think we need to take the same, and those companies need to take the same sort of safeguard mm. on, on people's information. And if we did that, and if people smartened up with what they shared, um, I think we would be better off and we would never get into a situation as dire as this one. Does the average Facebook user who, you know, takes a couple of shots of food or, you know, I don't know, out doing your favorite leisure activity, the average consumer user of Facebook, do they have anything to fear by any of this other than make sure what you're reading is authentic? I mean, what does the average user take from this? Uh, You know, the average user really, I don't think, at the end of the day, this isn't too much of a problem, other than I think people feel like perhaps uh, they might be more targeted for advertising or... But some people like that. Some people like the fact that their favorite store keeps sending them stuff that they've just ordered. They do. And and you know what? People, unfortunately, also, to detriment, also, unfortunately, click on spam, which means you and I have to deal with all kinds of emails that are um, spam. (laughs) If people wouldn't click on those things... Um, and you know what, we just, unfortunately, we can't trust the average person just right. can't be trusted with their information. But I think at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal. I think it's more, um, here's a company that we're spilling our beans to and can we trust them 
uh, to sort of keep that information in check because now they know so many things about us. But you know what? We continue to buy devices like Google Home and Alexa and things like that where we ask for things and tell it things. Now we're giving those companies all kinds of information about us and our habits. And um, as long as we can feel some sort of trust that the information isn't going to be used against us, I think it's fine because, like you said, some people like the targeted advertising. You know, we're, I'm searching for a Jeep, so yeah. I want to see ads or things about a Jeep because that's a product that I like, mm-hmm. um, just as an example. But um, there's nothing so, wrong with that. So has Cambridge Analytica here set a precedence for other companies in the sense that, you know, much like, the, you know, HR departments with the Me Too movement, now we've got to make sure that all of our systems are, are, are operating on the up and up and that we're, we're not doing something that will, end as, that will end us up in a place where Cambridge Analytica was? Well, I think it's definitely a wake-up call for anybody that's doing any kind of data warehousing is that uh, if you don't, uh, you know, protect this data, and, and, and if you do things with it that somehow come out as being used as nefarious, look out because there may be a whistleblower amongst your midst. And in this case, and that's how this started, right? This I mean, is how it started. Yeah. So, I mean, really, that in effect, that one whistleblower effectively killed that company. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. something? Yeah. It is. It's amazing. All right. Sid Bolton has been with his curator, Personal Computer Museum. Cambridge Analytica has declared bankruptcy. Uh, it is shutting down after the Facebook scandal. Uh, the firm saying that the unfairly negative media coverage uh, has uh, just made the company bad news. Sid, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Yeah, no problem, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.